Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's subcast. Welcome back to the Substack, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Anaya Follerin Iman, the director of the Equiano Project, and one of the reasons why uh, I wanted to uh, have this conversation with Anaya is because uh, I think, as will become apparent during the conversation, the uh, initiative that she has started, that she's overseeing, is going to be one of the most important contributions to our national debate. So before we get into that, Anaya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And um, let's let's just start with, with who you are. Just tell us a bit about yourself, um, where you grew up and how you ended up to be here. Brilliant. Um, so I, I was born in London, but I actually grew up in, in Kent, um, the child of Nigerian immigrants in the UK. But interestingly, both of them went to uh, school in the UK, so I, even though they weren't born here. So I don't know if it's first or second generation, um, but primarily a single parent household. Um, and as I say, a lot of the time when I discuss my background, it, my mum's quite an interesting woman. So she's got small C conservative values. She's very political, um, but she's strange in the sense that she's actually an atheist, which is quite unique when it comes to um, Nigerian uh, families a lot of the time they they're either Pentecostal evangelical Christians of the charismatic kind um or or they are um, Muslim and so in that sense she was quite independent minded uh, and and passionate and and is and continues to be and so I think that that is a, a short a quick insight into perhaps why I've been quite questioning um of a lot of orthodoxies associated with um, particular identity and cultural groups. Um, so I I guess in terms of what my title is, I, I mean, it's so hard to to place a singular thing in, in, in politics when you're doing broadcasting and journalism, but also make, making some contribution to the public debate. But I, I would generally describe myself as a writer and broadcaster, but also I founded in 2020 um, an organisation called the Equiano Project, um, and that was in response to, as I'm sure we'll get on um, at the rest of the discussion, in response to many of the debates about race and identity following the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was very concerned about the direction of travel of anti-racist discourse, which uh, presented a singular view of what it meant to be black in not just Britain, but the entire world. And that um, anyone who disagreed with that orthodoxy was a racist, essentially. That phrase that we heard very often, you're either racist or anti-racist, and that anti-racist had a particular meaning. And I knew from the ethnic minority people in my life um, that there was a wide range of views on whether or not Britain was a racist society, uh, what it meant to be an ethnic minority uh, in Britain and other parts of the world, um, and different attitudes towards free speech and expression and tolerance and liberal democracy. And those views just weren't being heard. So I founded the Equiano Project in order to promote diversity of opinion um, and public debate on those issues. So pretty much since I, I left university, I've been involved in supporting and creating various initiatives around free speech and 
and open dialogue and democratic participation. And just just before we get to the Equiano project, I'm going to ask you about the name and who's involved and the goals of it and all that stuff. But um, let's just pause at the university point. Just talk us through about talk us through your university experience. You know where you went and did that was that the moment that sort of ignited this concern over the issues, or or did it come after that? Yeah, so I went to the University of Leeds and lots of people are often surprised about that. I, I had a really great time. I think it was a great city to study, um, really creative and cultured and lively. Um, and so, and I studied Arabic and international relations. So interestingly, I originally thought that I was going to be involved in Middle East and foreign policy. And I, I wouldn't rule that out. You know, I, I think the world is, is still changing very fast and, and foreign policy is a really big topic of conversation I think for for this era but that's what I originally went to university um, to do and I started in 2015 and uh, it was very interesting because that was the time when there was lots of these big discussions in society about uh, Brexit and Trump and these political and cultural conflicts and and the rise of populism and so it felt like a really important time to be participating in the public conversation and one of the things that I found really frustrating at university was that there was this live and exciting conversation going on in, in, in the broader public life but the debates were very narrow on university and that is for most people the opposite of what university is meant to be it's meant to be um, a place where you have passionate uh, challenging intellectual discourse and disagreement where new knowledge is created and academic freedom and open discussion are, are at the heart. And I, I didn't find that. And not only that, actually, there were particular orthodoxies that were pushed. Uh, an example that I often talk about was uh, there was a, a movement that was very much endorsed by the university called Why Is My Curriculum White? And it had a series of events and curriculum changes. And one of the ones that I went to uh, which, because I was very curious about this. I mean, I'm 18, 19, wanting to uh, understand the, the views that the university were propagating and potentially to be convinced by them. And one of the things that was mentioned, there was, a, there was an event called Decolonizing Gender. And it effectively perpetuated this view that there was no such thing as gender in pre-colonial Africa. And that uh, this mythical, pure... Uh, tree hugging people existed before uh, white white evil colonialists came over, and everything changed then. And and they brought all of these rigid binary ideas of gender. And, and I I just thought, firstly, why is there not a, a different view? Secondly, the the evidence that was put forward was uh, tenuous at best. I mean, I remember one of the examples was the fact that one of the the claim that Yoruba, which is the ethnicity that I'm part of, that the language doesn't um, have gendered uh, distinctions uh, when it comes to describing people. I think I think that's a big claim to make because of that particular example that gender didn't exist. I know very well in my culture that um, that gender has very significant and distinct meaning, and that is rooted in not just something quite recent, but something um, historical. And so I, I think it was. Along that time, when I just started to think, I, I feel that I'm being, uh, the wool is being pulled over my eyes here a little bit. <laughs> and so I started to seek out other ideas. And, and it 
try and read broader things that I was being uh, taught at university. Every module that I did had something on postmodernism, had something on Judith Butler um, and Foucault. And I think we should engage in those ideas. They've made important contributions. But this was being clearly presented as morally superior um, to to other um, ideas that countered it. So I think it, it was amongst all of that, the discussions about populism, free speech, uh, the way that institutions were captured that that really politicised me um, and made me think that this is a really important conversation that, I, that I'd like to contribute to. And that pressure, just, just while we're talking about the universities, do you think that that ideological pressure, was that coming more from from lecturers and professors or was it at the student level I mean because you often hear that I mean I've obviously been involved with the fight to to keep academic freedom in universities to promote it but but critics will often say well this is this is being exaggerated it's not it's not a real issue that um Mm. that actually we don't really have a problem within universities um obviously your experience was slightly different but where, where in your mind is that pressure coming from how does it manifest to a a student going through one of the universities yeah so I think it this is the thing when when you're talking about a kind of broader cultural problem it's often difficult to pinpoint so concretely and that's why people can dismiss it because you're often talking about kind of a constricting stifling atmosphere but it came in in different ways and for example uh, I was one of the editors of the student newspaper and I wanted to commission an article that was critical of um, the why is my curriculum why. And I think, to me, that's a very important uh, thing to do as young people that are aspiring journalists, that you you know criticise orthodoxies and, and present different views and try and represent a, a wide range of perspectives of the student body. And when that happened, actually, a small group of of students um, essentially tried to to get me removed from from that position, basically told me that I was perpetuating white supremacy and and giving an opportunity for people to promote white supremacist views. So sometimes it is actually a a very intense activist um, minority group of students that uh, organise and try and... uh, get people cancelled um, and, and make complaints and things like that. So that it, it can often come from a minority. I don't think it is the majority. However, even if it's not the majority of students, I think some students are either ambivalent, some of them are are scared or just go along with um, whatever the, the norms are at that time. So a minority can do um, a lot of damage in that respect. I also think it can be the, the institutions um, themselves and, and the bureaucracy. I mean, when, when this happened, um, I tried to uh, get my student union to host a free speech debate. And they ultimately did host a free speech debate um, after a lot of negotiation with them. But there was lots of bureaucratic obstacles that were put in place. So they wanted my uh, the, the people that I wanted to invite to speak to um, sign a various different code of conduct forms, uh, they wanted it very managed and, and regulated. And, and so oftentimes the the risk averse nature of the bureaucracies um, of, of the universities can 
be, be an opportunity for these other people to exploit it but when they make claims of harm and and things like that and I do think I'm, I'm sure it's also uh, many lecturers as well I mean I've, I've when it comes to uh, some of the famous cases over the last few years Kathleen Stock there were lecturers that out and out endorsed her cancellation which I just find extraordinary I mean talk about undermining your entire profession when you're doing something like that so I think it's a combination acting within a broader culture that is increasingly uh, estranged from these liberal ideals which then um, create a vacuum for what I think are often cowardly people opportunistic people uh, to impose a particular orthodoxy. Yeah and I think what you often find particularly within universities as you say is the the activist group is is probably no more than maybe 10 to 15 percent um maybe not even that but but very vocal sometimes very organized and i think in those in those um circumstances as you say moderates find it very difficult to speak out especially within a culture that does already lean heavily in one direction i mean one of the reasons why parallel to the Equiano project, which which we're going to come and talk about, one of the reasons why a sort of a rebel network of academics had, had worked so hard on the Higher Education Academic Freedom Act in, in trying to put it together and trying to get it through is because they were sick and tired of, of this very uh, vocal activist. And at times, as we saw with Kathleen Stock and other cases, very aggressive um, minority in trying to shut down intellectual freedom and I often find you know I teach two courses at university a first year and a third year and I often find by the time that students come through to the third year um, you know they are you know they are often dissatisfied with the experience because they feel that they've not been given a full range of perspectives and viewpoints that it, of all the places in the world that you're supposed to get that right you're supposed to get that in higher education on university campus and every year or I can almost you know time it like clockwork a student will say well we, you know I haven't had different perspectives and this isn't about one university I've, I've worked at five six universities through my career and I think students are increasingly questioning whether universities are doing what they're supposed to do Oh, I, I completely agree. And, and when I graduated, I, I created this um, student free speech group called Free Speech Champions. Um, and it had dozens and dozens of students from across the country that were concerned about um, the lack of uh, wide range of viewpoints uh, that they were being taught in, in many of their courses and, and completely echoing the things that you've said. I, you know, I've spoken to many students that are in third year studying English literature, for example, and, and finding by the end of it that they've done models on eco-criticism and, and postmodernism and feminist criticism, not saying that they shouldn't be taught these, but these were the main reoccurring um, models that they were taught and not the canonical works of Western civilization that form the basis of the entire discipline itself and, and feeling that actually by the end of it, um, they don't know the essential works um, of of their own discipline, and and that that's a huge problem. 
And we we know that, as many people have said, that you know this that the university students then go on to form the cultural, intellectual, and political elite, and therefore, if this elite that is being created do not understand or feel confident in the foundational ideas of of Western civilization, how can we expect? them to argue for it, to be confident about it, to be able to defend it. So this has huge consequences. And I think I think it is changing. But I think for so long, we just had a conversation where, oh, well, these are just pesky, annoying, woke students. This is not really something we should care about. But I think we are really seeing that in institutions, this is having a huge, huge impact. Yeah, and I think that's the most important point, that the that graduates are going on to institutions that are dominated by the graduate class and are taking are taking these experiences with them. I do see some changes. I think if you ask parents, do they think universities are offering value for money? If you look at some of the regular polling data, over half of parents now don't think universities are offering value for money. Um, I think this debate is only going to grow as students and, and others question whether universities are delivering my my personal bugbear is is with some of the elite institutions, some of the some of the Russell Group universities, who even as we've been trying to get the Higher Education Act through Parliament, have still repeatedly come out and said, "Look, this is not an issue. This is not this is not not a real thing." At the same time, you know, as we've seen so many prominent cases of people either being no platformed, being fired, being harassed, and really only people who have worked within academia or have gone through the universities can understand the subtle pressures that are put at work. So, you know, when the BBC will do a freedom of information um, study and find that, you know, only X number of events have been cancelled and they'll hold that up as an example of why there isn't a problem. Well, actually, anybody who knows universities knows that the events are cancelled long before you get to that stage, right? They get cancelled by the informal pressures that work within schools, the incentives that aren't there to challenge the orthodoxy, you know, the way in which academics do often view their jobs as pretty openly political uh, occupations. And, uh, and yeah, and I think, so I am optimistic to some extent like you, but I'm also still very pessimistic about the the refusal of the institutions themselves to basically reform uh, and change. Exactly. And I think, you know, it, it, I, I find it so disingenuous when you see those, those the evidence, so-called, that is put forward that only a certain proportion are cancelled. Firstly, the overwhelming majority of events are not political events. So it's not surprising that a cake event, for example, is not going to be cancelled. So that, in that sense, actually, it's interesting to look at the ones that have been cancelled and they are often around these um, thorny and taboo moral and cultural debates. And two, as you rightfully said, actually, many of them don't even get to happen in the first place, whether those claims that, well, they must provide security, asking you know, students to provide security, getting people to sign code of conduct forms, or, or, or just not allowing the um, event to happen in the first place. And also, at the end of the day, it's not just about the uh, cancellation of events. There's a, as you rightfully mentioned, often a kind of chilling atmosphere when it comes to many of these discussions. So I think it's a way to um, distract and delegitimize these claims. But even according to, to many polling data, a very high proportion of, of young people say that they are scared to express their views out of 
fear for that having professional consequences. So I would say the evidence is is overwhelming. But even if it wasn't, which it is overwhelming, we should want to create uh, a university atmosphere, a university culture, which is open and free and promoting of a wide range of views. So efforts to do that, I would I say are in many ways inherently laudable. So I think it's very questionable uh, for those who uh, are very sceptical and, and antagonistic to genuine efforts to improve the quality of university life. Yeah, exactly. And I could talk about this all day and the asymmetry that, you know, is applied to different events depending on where they are on the political spectrum. But we're here mainly to talk about your initiative, which is the Equiano Project. And firstly, tell us about the name, where it came from, and and, and then tell us about what why you've put this organisation together and what you're trying to achieve. So the Equiano Project is named after um, a... 18th century former slave and an abolitionist called Alauda Equiano. And before I go into a bit more detail about his life, one of the reasons why I wanted to name the organisation that was because, um, as many people have pointed out over the last couple of years, that we do have a problem in this country of the importing of the Americanized racial culture wars and I do think that there's a lot of important lessons to be learned about the American race debate and I don't think that we should just say oh this has nothing to do with us we shouldn't talk about it but actually there's many interesting and important uh, black British figures historically and and presently that have shaped uh, racial and colonial history in this country that we often um, don't hear about so that that was one of the reasons but the most important reason why I named the organisation after him was because he, through his amazing entrepreneurship, was able to buy his own freedom. Now, most slaves did not have the ability to buy their own freedom. But what I found fascinating about Equiano is that um, even in times of just extraordinary subjugation and brutality, he believed in the possibility of individuals and of himself to transcend his circumstance. And he he did that. He he overcame. And his contribution, um, his slave narrative, um, was quite radical insofar as it repudiated the uh, idea that uh, African people uh, can think critically, can express themselves, that can can write literature uh, and so on. And so it was it was it was very influential in uh, that first-person account of the brutality of slavery. And so, to me, his story is is both a, a story of a uh, empowered, achieved and accomplished Black Britain, but also one that believed very much in human agency and he believed in winning his arguments out in the open. He believed in democracy. Um, he, he was an enlightenment figure in many ways. And so I felt that his... His, his narrative um, encompassed uh, m- many of the values of the Equinani Project, which I would say are freedom of speech and thought, uh, moral independence, the fact that there are no easy answers. And actually, uh, we, we should dive deep into these questions uh, to, to, to answer them and not, and not fall for what I think are often simplistic narratives. So I started it, as, as I said, um, at the beginning in 2020, because... It was clear to me that 
the debate was very one-sided in 2020 in response to the, the kind of tragic death of George Floyd and that institutions were uncritically embracing a particular narrative about racism within British society and totally implementing policies and practices that actually very much contradicted our liberal ideas about equality of opportunity, um, fairness, meritocracy, and effectively recasting Britain's past as one of that is fundamentally evil um, and only about racism, slavery, and wrongdoing. And so that that historical complexity was being erased. Um, I felt that actually we were repackaging many racist ideas about the fact that certain races have different moral characters. If you're white, that must mean that you are intrinsically privileged, morally suspicious. Um, and if you're black, that means you're spiritually and morally uh, more more rooted. Um, and, and even we heard some of those just frankly absurd things coming out of America and some places here that rationality and, and reason and punctuality uh, were white. And if you believe that, what do you then think of of non-white people? That irrationality of, of sluggishness is, is somehow uh, an, a non-white thing? So the, these racist ideas were being repackaged. Um, and I, I thought it was imperative to, to challenge that, to platform a, a range of views. And so the first event we ever did was um, mid in the summer of, of uh, 2020 with Trevor Phillips, uh, Catherine Burbel Singh, Helen Pluckrose, um, Remy Adekoya, and uh, a woman called Aisha Kambi. And we had hundreds and hundreds of people attend it online. And since then, it's, it's pretty much just expanded to promote a wide range of views. And just talk to us a bit about some of the ideas, some of the views that were um, being debated and discussed at your recent conference, because mm-hmm. one of the things that caught my eye is you've you've essentially put together a network that not only includes contrarian thinkers from the UK um, who are who are willing to to challenge the the orthodoxy, but but you've also um, brought over a lot of US thinkers. You know, I noticed that John McWaters, Glenn Lowry. Coleman Hughes, you know, who who are obviously, you know, coming from, you know, what is still quite a different experience. I mean, perhaps you might argue we're increasingly converging, but they've got that experience of of the US and it's more, you know, even more polarized debate over over race and identity. But what are some of the views and things that that you were discussing and 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 was there a consensus or a, some kind of point of agreement that emerged at the at the conference? Mm. No, that's that's a really um, good good question about whether there were uh, common themes. So, uh, in uh, January, mid January, at the twelfth and thirteenth, um, the Equiano Project hosted a, a conference at the University of Cambridge called "Towards the Common Good: Rethinking Race in the Twenty First Century," and the the goal of the conference was essentially to bring together um, the thinkers, particularly ethnic minority thinkers, from both sides of the Atlantic who are critical um, or or have varying views about the direction of travel of of contemporary anti-racism and are worried about the increasing fixation on identity um, and and the way that it's putting people in rigid boxes and alienating 
many ethnic minority people from their cultural inheritance. You know, this is our society as well. We live here. I, I'm proud to be in this society and, and, and I belong here. And also the knee-jerk assumption that uh, racial disparities, uh, disparities in socioeconomic outcomes were de facto a cause of racism and, and uh, an attempt to examine actually what are the, the different causes or the, the range of causes that contribute to these disparities. So we brought together uh, in such a exciting and amazing location uh, uh, roughly 25 speakers and another um, 110 delegates, so about 150 people in total. So pretty much all of the leading ethnic minority thinkers from America and, and, and the UK on, on this particular end of the um, discussion. So as you mentioned, Glenn Lowry, Coleman Hughes, uh, John McWhorter, uh, Thomas Chaston Williams, and some slightly lesser known uh, individuals such as uh, Ian Rowe and, and Jason Wiley, um, and also the, the the UK thinkers, Trevor Phillips, uh, Manira Mirza, um, Tony Saul, uh, Arif Ahmed spoke, Catherine Burble Singh, um, and we the thing that we all shared um, before I get into some of the things that came out of the the, the conference was a commitment to freedom of speech and open dialogue. And that actually there are people from the very far left of the political spectrum um, and, and people that were more conservative oriented, but actually the recognition that in order to live in a diverse society, uh, we need to be able to negotiate our differences in a free and open way. And actually there is a basis, that, a foundation that we can share, which is that we all want to improve society and we believe society can get better. And so there was a, a series of discussions, panel-led discussions. We had the opening speech by John McWhorter, really contextualising and understanding this new politics of race. And, you know, why is it that universalist ideas that were championed often during the 1960s, embodied in people like Martin Luther King, were now being repackaged as as a, a white perspective or a perspective that is archaic. And actually what we need is a new race, racial consciousness at the same time when society has been progressing uh, to such a point where racism is highly socially taboo and that we actually have laws against discrimination. There was this kind of paradox emerging within society. And John McWhorter uh, opened with, with a, a really a speech that I um, recommend everyone go listen to. Um, on, on our YouTube channel. And then we also talked about, you know, why do we have such a constricting debate? How do we um, ensure that a wide range of views were heard? And I was very happy that we had um, Sonia Sota from the um, Observer um, give her perspective and, and contribute to the debate of some of the experiences she's had in the discussion around uh, transgender issues. And and also the, the big hitter panel was this, you know, why why do disparities exist and what are the causes of them? And that was uh, Glenn Lowry, uh, uh, Tony Saw and, and Catherine Burble Singh. And ultimately, these are some of the discussions that we had. And the, and the key things um, that really emerged uh, from the conference, the key themes is that the current narrative is, is pessimistic and defeatist. And I think that a lot of people criticise the current narrative that it's you know, left wing and progressive. I think that 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 is true in a sense, but actually, in a in a bigger sense, is that it's 
quite pessimistic about human nature. This belief that racism is embedded within society and it never really gets better. It only just transforms. And that actually racial groups, in, in they, there's a kind of inherited racial um, guilt and an inherited racial victimhood. That, that creates a, a, a suspicion, a pessimism, a kind of uh, conflict within society that I think many of us felt were deeply unhelpful. But also it's incredibly defeatist. Why would you uh, want to improve society? Why would you have confidence in your fellow man and fellow citizen if you think that racism, uh, a social ill, is, is effectively just embedded and inevitable? But also that, that there is a kind of performativity of contemporary anti-racism, that rather than do the long and arduous work of improving people's material lives, like Catherine Bell was saying, you know, starting a school in a deprived area to help um, inner city kids, you just need to post a black square. Uh, you just need to hire a few, um, you know, increase representation, whatever that means of a very specific uh, racial background. And actually the, the, the long work of improving education um, that lifts all people up, um, the, the long work of improving prosperity within society takes a, um, takes a backseat in favor of performativity. And as I mentioned earlier, that that actually you end up uh, repackaging what we we all agreed were kind of racist ideas. That actually your your race isn't that they think your race is the defining feature of you and should be the way in which you relate to one another. Whether that's you're black and you're a victim, or you're white and you're you're an oppressor, and all of this um, is not improving society. Um, a lot of this is making society worse and actually taking agency and responsibility uh, away from individuals and communities to, to pull themselves up. Because when you have a generation that are told that society's rigged against you um, and it's structured against you and, and is basically oriented to, to hate you, that's not a very uh, uplifting, agentic message to, to a younger generation. So it was very much that we need further research um, into the causes of disparities. We need a much more realistic and in many ways optimistic narrative that recognises progress. And actually, we need to claim the moral high ground. Just because someone says that they're um, an anti-racist, um, actually interrogate what the assumptions that they're forwarding, because there isn't one way to be an anti-racist. And I, I do think, I, I do class myself as an anti-racist, but to me, the ultimate goal of anti-racism is to, to make itself redundant, which is to that we're all human beings, we're all individuals, and that we're recognised for our individual accomplishments, achievements and moral character. And that is not what is proposed as anti-racism today. And so that is ultimately the, the, the shared narrative um, that emerged from the conference and how we... Um, collectively and individually make these ideas more systematic and concrete that we can win the argument out in the public sphere. Yeah, it's, it's always been remarkable to me that um, 
that people can't see how insulting it is to assume that, that people should think or act in a certain way because of their fixed group identity. And it's just always been something that I found remarkable in the debate over descriptive representation. And as you say, the performative element to it, I do think there is actually an, an, un, an undercurrent of narcissism that runs through identity politics, that essentially this is about a particular section of society assuming a sense of moral righteousness or or, or a sense of virtue uh, and being able to essentially look down on others um, um, because of that. I know Rob Henderson um, and others have talked about you know the the rise of luxury beliefs in society and and the way in which beliefs have become a new status symbol for a certain section of society and i think for 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 many people and you know many people who dominate institutions this brand of identity politics has actually become akin to to status that it comes with its own vocabulary it comes with its own belief system only those who have gone through the elite schools and universities have sort of absorbed this this worldview uh and i think it's become become increasingly endemic and as you say i think the agency point to me is so important because you know if individuals come to the conclusion that there's no point assuming agency or personal responsibility for their lives because the system uh, is institutionally hardwired against them then why would they uh, try and uh, uh, change their lives why would they try and um, climb up climb climb the ladder and i know tony sewell who was at your conference that obviously made some of these arguments in his in his report the the government's report on racial disparities in which he he absolutely correctly pointed out that actually if you look at the disparities that exist you know often they're they're, they're multivariate there's lots of variables at play one of which by the way is the disproportionately high rates of family breakdown in some communities and and the way in which values are, are certain sets of values are pushed among certain minority communities and not others. Um, and the reaction to his report was, was, it was hysterical. I mean, it was, it was like something I'd never seen before from otherwise intelligent people, many of whom know the evidence perfectly well. No serious social scientist can look at the evidence on racial prejudice in Britain and conclude that it's been rising over time. No serious social scientist can do that. All of the reliable measures that we have have shown from the 80s onwards there has been a dramatic decline in levels of racial prejudice in society. Even some of the most reliable field experiments that we have have shown that certainly discrimination exists. Nobody's denying that discrimination in the labour market and the rental market. But even those field experiments show over time, it's been declining rapidly. So the narrative that we that we have about institutional discrimination and racism, um, the most worrying aspect of that for me is that it's been promoted by the very people and the very institutions that are also supposed to be the defenders of objective truth mm-hmm. um, and the defenders of empirical objective research and all of that has gone out the window which is why John McWhorter and others have said actually you know what this isn't a belief system this is an ideology this is a religion right this is a religion and if you present evidence to the contrary that evidence is first attacked 
um, which I, brings me to a question I want to ask you, and is then simply ignored, right? So, so there are two phases in the response. There is an attack and then there is uh, pe- people just ignoring you, which, which brings me to the question. I mean, how have people responded to the Equiano project? Because simply by existing, you are actually challenging this narrative, um, particularly, um, you know, not only on the liberal left of the spectrum or the progressive left, I should say, the, the more radical section of the of the liberal left, um, but simply by existing, you're challenging some of those narratives. What's the reaction been from from those quarters, if any? Yeah, so just just quickly, um, I, I completely agree with you um, on, on the points that you've just raised. And I think it's astonishing because a lot of these things are actually harming uh, the very people that uh, many of these activist groups are claiming to uh, to be helping. I mean, one of the things uh, with, with COVID nineteen, just very quickly, in the in the early days of the pandemic, there was lots of discussion about uh, ethnic minority people being disproportionately impacted, and um, the the initial reaction was that this is partly to do with racism. Um, within society and the impact of racism and and through further investigation we found that there's been a whole range of reasons the fact that for example South Asian people are more likely to live in intergenerational housing ethnic minority people are more likely to um, have people facing jobs and that could go from a bus driver to a pharmacist and and a doctor and actually when those and obviously the um uh living in uh, uh, inner city communities and cities. So when all of those complexities uh, were were illuminated, we found that there was much more to the story and and we find that consistently. But this orthodoxy is genuinely preventing us from actually finding real concrete solutions that actually work um, because we all have to uh, spend lots of time talking about whether or not it, it, it's racism and and then do anti-racist training and um, anti-racist education, which, which when that's not the cause of the fact that um, disproportionately uh, young black boys in the inner city are, are involved in violent crime, for example, um, or the fact that black Caribbean boys um, are more likely to be excluded. Uh, there's a whole range of factors and this discussion is preventing us from from genuinely actually solving these very important problems because we all want to improve society. Um, So just on the point about the reaction, what's been quite interesting actually is that I haven't, the the Oakland project hasn't got as much uh, pushback as um, I had originally anticipated. And I think that some of that might be to do with the fact that people are more reluctant to criticise it because a lot of it, the majority of people involved are the minority people. Um, and I think that we do very much uh, elevate um, individuals like Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass and, as I mentioned, Alaude uh, uh, Equiano. Um, it, it'll be very difficult to, to basically uh, argue that these are individuals that are purveying hatred um, and, and racism. Um, but but also I think um, I do think that when you we speak in terms of uh, moral values um, of uh, common humanity and and, and people uh, treating us by the content of our character and and, and those uh, uh, cliches are, are very important uh, universal uh, values to teach um, I do think that they they resonate 
quite deeply. And I have, I think I have tried and, you know, there's lots of different methods and tactics to win the argument in the public sphere. But I, I really have tried to position the uh, the Equino project as, as not necessarily a, a combative um, organisation that that's one that is is very much about ideas and values and and that doesn't mean that you don't get um uh in the crossfire because it we do live in a very polarized time with 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 this debate but i think generally speaking um the reaction has been positive that a lot of people reach out just in such relief um thinking that they were going crazy um thinking that, you know, am I the one wrong for thinking that? Maybe it's a bit strange to separate kids in a classroom by their racial identity. Um, and so the, the, re- the reaction, I would say, has been generally positive. But that's not to say that we have had a fair and equal um, uh, representation in the public debate. You know, you, you see individuals like Dr. Shola Moshog, Bamamu, Kay and Day Andrews, who will, go, will be allowed to talk about race completely unchallenged. They will, they, I, there's On certain like, royal documentaries, no less. <laughs> exactly. I, I find it astonishing that, you know, on all the mainstream channels, they will often just have these individuals as if there's no, there's no debate or discussion. So that's never happened to, to me or anyone involved in the Equiano project. So I think there's still a long way to go for, for institutions to actually give these ideas a fair hearing. But in terms of the public, I think it's been so positive. But I do, I do think on this point about about voice and about you know rep, who represents who and who can cut through. I do think one of the one of the reasons I'm optimistic is because we are living at a time where we now have a genuinely independent writing thinking class that does not need to be reliant upon the universities, even the think tanks, um, you know, the museums and whatever else, the publishers that you can actually build a grassroots organisation, give it a presence on social media, and give it a presence on YouTube. Obviously, I urge everyone to check out Equiano Project on YouTube and uh, Substack and whatever it is, right? So the institutions, in a sense, I think, you know, two things. One is they've kind of been outflanked, right? And, and, and they haven't quite realised that yet. The second thing, I think, is there will be a reaction and it won't necessarily be particularly pleasant. I think they will increasingly struggle to command cultural, political and social power in that environment. And the third is it is going to lead to a flourishing ecosystem of alternative voices. Now, the challenge there is not to bombard people with, you know, so many voices that they're just overwhelmed you know, that people just feel that, you know, there's just too many, too many groups, too many networks, too many substacks, too many people on Twitter, whatever. And it is, I think, the challenge increasingly is going to be is going to be giving, let's just call it the contrarian, some might say sensible side of the debate, a, a degree of coherency and a degree of uh, unity. Um, and that, and, I'm, and I mean globally too, right? I mean, I think the more that things become fragmented, the more that things become, uh, you know, perhaps divided, um, yeah. the more, you know, that may dilute dilute the argument. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really interesting point because I think that's one of the things that a lot of people that we, we were saying at the conference, that, that there's this thing that we share 
but there isn't really a name for it. There, what's this mood that's uh, supports free speech? It actually wants much more viewpoints. Um, you know, classical liberal doesn't really cut it because I think there's people on the left and and the right in this debate, um, and uh, anti woke feels quite negative. Um, I think to to self describe. And liberal, I don't think, cuts it because many people identify as a conservative. And liberal has very different connotations in America, actually, which I think is quite interesting. Um, so I think that I think uh, much more work in having creating that sense of coherence, as you said, um, that and a kind of shared set of ideals and, and beliefs, which can then be much easily, much more easily taken forward and argued for um, within institutions. That and, and it'd be much more difficult to to deny or ignore. And I, I totally agree about the the counterweight of the new media. You know, I one of my first interviews was was on trigonometry, right. um, and that yeah. I know we have Constantine on here. <laughs> yeah, that in twenty twenty, and that that was that was a lot of fun. And I think a lot of people first heard about me through that interview. Um, and so I think I think that we, but I, I don't want us to get to a point where I, I think we do need new new institutions and new organized organizations but I still want to win the argument within our tr- established and traditional institutions because they're all of ours and and it's our society and I don't think that we should abandon them as I think some people I understand why but some people uh, argue yeah no I just I just wanted to echo that because I think there is a view also going back to the university debate there is a view that says look the institutions are done, it's over, and actually the future should be about building parallel institutions, um, you know, new universities, um, you know, and I've always been, I've always, I've always understood why people have reached that conclusion, and I've been sympathetic to, to that argument, but I've also been very sceptical, because to me, it, it, it does feel like an enormous retreat, it just feels like you are, really vacating um, a lot of territory, um, even though you know the arguments that you've got are stronger. I mean, whatever you want to call it, wokeism, radical progressivism, whatever, I'm increasingly of the view, actually, that it will burn itself out because it doesn't have the intellectual breadth and depth to um, respond to its critics. I just do not think it has that and the ratchet effect within it that it, it, it has to continuously find grievances you know new minority groups new performative displays you know that it will eventually self-combust because the examples become ever more ridiculous the narratives become ever more detached from objective reality and you can already begin to see it you know take the scotland debate as an example you know the more this stuff goes mainstream the more you realize as i've been polling scotland for the last few weeks you know 80 percent of people are saying look actually i think this is bonkers i don't think we should be allowing 16 year olds to uh, change their gender legally without any medical oversight i don't think the process of transition should be happening without parental involvement or not even telling parents and i certainly don't think alalisa mandy that we should reduce the age to 13 even on that even on the gender identity stuff right yeah people are just parents especially by the way i think parents parents are going to be enormously uh consequential in the political debate going forward i think they are increasingly looking 
at schools, universities, uh, you know, hospitals, and just thinking this is absolutely bonkers. And the more that people will speak out and challenge it, the more moderates will feel emboldened to speak up. So my my working hypothesis, and I know that people are having a debate about this at the moment on social media, with some people saying, you know, wokeism has peaked, others saying it's it's going to carry on growing. My my gut reaction is it's going to self-combust just under the weight of its contradictions, under the weight of the double standards, and under the the weight of it actually being a very thin intellectual project and and such a, a minority minority fringe um anti-democratic view you know one of the reasons that um amongst many reasons that um that there was these populist backlashes was because people were so fed up by um such a kind of narrow um fringe group of elite people within society acting so contemptuous um, of of the majority, and I think that is that whole logic is is very intrinsic um, to this authoritarian, this new authoritarianism um, within society. And I, I I agree that many of the arguments are, are basically on on quicksand; they just don't stack up to much scrutiny. And that's why there is such a hostility to public debate, um, because any actual light that is shone you know exposes um the absurdity but also it's it's such a demoralizing um viewpoint even i think for those who who hold it that to constantly have to keep up with changing um language and to basically have such uh, one-dimensional and hateful views to so many sections of society i mean it, i think it leads to self to ostracization also just a complete stifling of creativity that only if you're this particular box then can you talk about this or you can um, write about this or create this work I mean that is just not a culture of of, of vibrant free open citizens and so but I don't want to we can't be complacent I think people that say woke has peaked I know that during the pandemic people thought that oh surely we woke has peaked because we've got a real virus and all these horrible things happening. And I think people thought that even with Ukraine, actually, I think that this ideology is, is, is very much within institutions is going to take and within the education system. Many, a new generation are being socialized into safetyist um, ideas and censorious ideas. And so whilst the, we are seeing more mainstream uh, more mainstreaming of, of counter arguments I think we, we shouldn't be complacent and on that on that note what's next for for the Equiano project and how can yeah. you build on the on the network that you've that you've put in place because as I say I am actually quietly optimistic about the state of the public square. I know, obviously, you know, big tech is something we've not talked about, and we won't have that discussion today. And you know, but, but, but given the flourishing of these new networks and groups, um, you know, which are willing to challenge a consensus, I'm pretty optimistic. So, when it when it comes to the Equiano project, what what's next for for you and the wider network? Yeah. So, I mean, so that the conference was a transatlantic discussion but I think and I thought that was really necessary and important because I do think there are key things that we both share at both sides of the Atlantic but I think what's next is having a very UK specific discussion so I would really like to have a series of uh, public debates and discussions about many of the issues that around race and identity that 
are just not having a serious discussion, a mature and sophisticated discussion, whether that's on immigration, um, integration, uh, demographic shifts within society, um, heritage and how we understand the past and discussion about decolonization um, and all of the the impacts of that. So, um, and even Windrush. Um, So I think that what I would like to see the Akkano project over the next 12 months is take on the momentum and, and, and a friendly feeling of the conference and to now have a much more mature UK discussion about these things that we're not talking about as much as we should. And if people want to get involved, follow you, support, how, where do they go? The Project.com, the Equiano Project on, on YouTube, on, on Twitter, uh, on Facebook, all Instagram, all of the social medias. Um, we, we post our events. We also post articles as well and um, want to build this community. So to sign up to our newsletter and you'll get all of the updates from what we're up to. Well, great. And obviously, I recommend everybody does that. And uh, everybody also follows uh, follows you on Twitter and um, do share uh, news and information about the project to others who may be interested. And for now, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And uh, we wish you all the very best with your work. It's much needed. It's really important intellectually. It's far more interesting than whatever we want to call this culture that we're in at the moment. So we wish you the very best with it. Thank you. Thank you.